0: Then if you have kids going to activities and stuff, they're like petri dishes. So they'll they'll
1: give you anything when
2: they come back home.
1: Dave's setup looks way better than
2: ours. Probably a background though. that looks fake. You've got a lot of light in your office. That's nice. I know.
3: It's actually like kind of a problem. It gets so bright that I can't see my screen, but I'm not complaining.
2: (laughs) What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Beam Radio.
3: Hello and welcome to this episode of Beam Radio. I am Sophie De Benedetto, and I am joined today by our co-hosts, Bruce Tate.
1: Hi, actually from Chattanooga this time.
3: Yeah, welcome back from the loop. And we've also got Alex Kutmos. Hey, Alex.
1: Hey, howdy, howdy. Uh,
3: so before we jump into today's episode and welcome our very special guest, we would love to hear from you, Bruce, on What's New with Graxio, one of our wonderful sponsors.
1: We are finally getting back on track with a live book content. And so that's pretty exciting. And we're also starting to do our public courses again. So while we were on the loop, we we streamlined our training schedule to something a little bit more narrow.
3: Very cool. I can definitely attest to the fact that Bruce is the person to learn LiveView from. That is how I basically learned LiveView over the course of us writing the programming LiveView book. So don't sleep on that one. Check it out. And I think that brings us to our guest for today. We are very excited to welcome Dave Lucia. Dave, how are you?
2: I am doing great. How are you all doing?
3: Doing good. Very nice to see you. So we have a lot of excellent topics to get into today. But one of the things that we like to do, Dave, when we have guests come on the show is we love for you to just share a little bit about your background in the Elixir community. So do you want to start out by telling us how you got into programming Elixir in the first place and maybe just a little bit about where you're at today?
2: Sure thing. Um, I started my Elixir journey back uh, probably 2015. Um, I was at a financial company called Bloomberg, and my manager at the time... uh, kind of told me about this language called Elixir that was coming out of the Ruby on rails community. And at the time I kind of had a programming, a functional programming itch, uh, playing around with Elm and a little bit of Haskell. Um, so I started with Elixir and I just fell in love with the idea of pattern matching. That was like something I'd not come across in any other language before I thought the concurrency stuff and and the beam were cool too, but, uh, pattern matching is what really got me hooked. Um, And so from there, I actually left Bloomberg to pursue Elixir. I found uh, a startup called The Outline that was looking for Elixir developers. And this is back in 2016. And we launched um, an online magazine called The Outline, um, all on Elixir, uh, which was really cool. Um, From there, I was there for a few years, moved on to a sports betting startup called SimpleBet. And SimpleBet is um, really cool uh, machine learning powered Uh, odds setting startup that makes it so that you could bet on sports while they're happening on very discrete moments in the game, like every pitch or every uh, down in an NFL or college football game. Um, And more recently, I've left SimpleBet and I'm now CTO of a small media company called Bitfo, uh, where we focus on the cryptocurrency domain and have a, a bunch of websites where we Uh, have educational material uh, in that domain. Um, So I've been using Elixir all throughout these startups, and it's been sort of a superpower for me. Um, And over the years, I've just been getting more and more involved in the community. And I think the community is is probably my favorite part of Elixir overall.
3: Very cool. I think um, the word superpower is interesting that you use, because I feel like I say that a lot, and I hear that a lot when it comes to especially small teams working with Elixir. And I think that you do see it as a choice for a lot, increasingly you see it as a choice for many startups because it does kind of supercharge your team and their productivity and what they're able to do. So I do want to hear more about kind of your journey through some of these startups with Elixir. But before we do that, I want to pick up another thing that you mentioned. You said that the community is your favorite part of writing Elixir. Yeah. Why is that? What is it about the Elixir community that you love so much?
2: A lot of things. Well, first of all, just in this room, I I think I've been following probably all of your careers for years. um, And Sophie and I got to to meet each other uh, a couple years ago now, um, mm-hmm. and I, I would say we're friends now, which is really nice. We had
3: such a blast at uh, what what was the conference we were at in New Orleans, the Big Elixir.
2: The Big Elixir. Yeah,
3: yeah. I feel like that really solidified the friendship.
2: So I I guess more you know broadly the, the Elixir community more than anything I think is very welcoming and very positive, and. This is just something that I hear over and over again about the Elixir community. And I don't know exactly what it is about this community uh, where the people who are most positive kind of rise to the top. Um, I've been in other language communities that are very much not this. Um, and I think it's really the leadership that, that Jose has set and the people that uh, Jose has attracted and surrounded himself, uh, just the tone that he sets in, you know, how he thinks about releasing new new technologies and new products and who, whom gets credit and um, just like, you know, a care for the craft. Um, all of those things coming together, how he treats people and, and working with people has really, I think, spread and uh, the community has really lifted those ethos up. Um, and so I've just been so excited to, to meet the kind of people who enjoy uh, helping each other grow, helping each other learn, uh, welcoming new and uh, younger or uh, greener people into the Elixir ecosystem has all been great, um, and it's kind of like this this growth mentality that the entire uh, ecosystem and community I think really uh, aspires to and upholds.
3: Yeah, I think that's um, it's very much been my experience as well. I, I entered the Elixir community when I was still, I think, fairly new to programming. I had really only been writing code for like two years, and I had come out of a boot camp. I attended the Flatiron School. Um, and so I felt that I didn't really know what I was doing. I still kind of feel that way in many ways. And yet I I always felt welcomed and supported by everyone I encountered in the Elixir community, um, the people on this call, very much included.
1: So I think that one of the important things about the Elixir community is that it's one that you can grow with. So Sophie, that you, you mentioned that you, you have been almost having an imposter syndrome kind of reaction to Elixir. And as an expert, that's that's a pretty striking thing to say. But Dave, one of the things that you've done is gone out of your way to bring new Elixir developers from a whole lot of different perspectives on board. I think that's, that's amazing that you've done so but still it's a functional language and it's one that introduces concurrency and new programming models. How have you had such great success engaging new developers in in your startups?
2: That's a really good question. Um, I think that passion is contagious. And for people who are uh, maybe new and eager to learn, uh, the people who wanna share, you kinda wanna like get close to those people. I think over time I've tried to put myself in that seat of the person who's passionate and wants to share with other people. Um, And I think actually that's been my most effective recruiting strategy. My last two roles of of bringing people on onto the team is just, you know, sharing the passion and and sharing, um, you know, let's grow together. Let's build interesting things together. Let's solve interesting problems together. Um, there's a lot of details. There's a a broad set of things that you could possibly learn, but don't worry. We're here to help. We're here to bring you along for the ride. Um, so I, I think really focusing on, um, you know, education, you know, psychological safety with the team where it's okay to fail. It's okay to not know something and to ask a question. Um, you know, I, I was just listening to you. the Elixir Wizards had Kate Resenis on the podcast. And Kate uh, is someone who I hired at SimpleBet um, because is she was speaking Mickey's with daughter? her. It's is Mickey's that... daughter? Yes. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> wow, amazing. That's so
3: crazy. That's amazing.
2: So I met Mickey uh, probably four years ago. She actually interviewed at SimpleBet. And for whatever reason, it didn't work out, but um, kind of reconnected with her a few years ago. And I, I love Mickey. I think she's, she's hilarious and, uh, brilliant. And I think at Elixir Conf, um, one that I think Sophie and I were both at not this year, but last year, um, I got a chance to meet Kate. She was actually on stage with her mom. Her mom was giving a talk and Kate came to, to join her halfway and kind of gave the second half of the talk. And I was just blown away by, uh, how confident Kate was and, you know, how much she wanted to learn. And I asked her, Hey, are you, are you looking for a role and brought her on to simple bet? Um, and I think that's not like a unique story with um, simple bet. We, we brought on someone who I think uh, people on this uh, panel here are familiar with is uh, Erminio Torres. Um, he's another eager uh, uh, developer who's, you know, greener in his career and, Um, You know, really wanted to learn was super passionate about learning and kind of like in every single direction Um, and just bringing him in and supporting him and supporting him um, in his writing and his speaking which are things he's very passionate about, Uh, you know, just making sure that people are on a growth trajectory and that you're able to support them in the ways that they want to grow, I think is can be very fulfilling for people so um, that's been successful for me and. uh, Bringing people onto the team.
1: So, do you try to find Elixir people and bring them on, or do you try to find other languages and train them up?
2: I aspirationally wanted to bring people from other languages, and the thing is, that it's hard to meet people where they're at. I, I've always like said that I want to bring people onto the team who are eager eager to learn and to grow, and that you know we can grow them with the team and teach them the skills along the way. But it's hard to select for those people. And they come from many different backgrounds. They might be in different language communities, might be brand new to programming. And so I I still don't know where to go and find those people, but they're everywhere is really the answer. Bruce, can you reframe your question? Because I've lost the thread of it.
1: (laughs) Yes, yeah, so, so I think that that's exactly the answer. After hearing what you said, I could tell exactly where, where you were coming from. So my question was, do you find people from other languages and bring them up, or do you bring on Elixir developers? But here you are, as someone who gives so much to the Elixir community, you find those unicorns, those um, those. Young Elixir developers with tremendous potential and you're in the right spot in the community to spot them and bring them on.
2: I think that that's what you do. (laughs) Aspirationally, I hope so. Um, And actually maybe here's another example. Um, So at Bitfo, um, I've hired uh, two people onto the team and we have a third joining in November who I'm really excited about. Um, But one of the members of the team we found through the Tailwind uh, community, the the CSS community. Um, And this developer, his name is Sean, he's um, a younger developer who's really into React and front-end programming. And kind of over the course of the last month being at Bitfo and working with us, uh, we've sort of gotten that itch for him a little bit where he's already working on his first backend tickets and getting into Elixir. So again, I think it's about sharing passion and getting you know, people excited about what you do and, you know, sharing why it's exciting to you personally. And uh, hopefully that catches on. So it sounds like you've you've hired and worked with a wide
0: range of, of engineers from you know early in their career to later in their career. Do you notice any commonalities between people picking up Elixir as like a first language and, you know, and, and adopting kind of the paradigms in, in FP versus maybe somebody who's later on in their career and came from an OO language? Like, do you see any any common threads across kind of those two, uh, those
2: two groups? That's a really good question that I haven't thought about before. I think the hardest thing for people coming from OO languages is how do I organize my project? Like at the highest level, conceptually, Um, the focus on data versus the focus on objects is where um, I think there's a tendency to over abstract and to, Uh, kind of hide things away if you're coming from an OO background. Um, And unlearning that takes a little bit of time, but it's usually not that much time. It's like a few months and then something clicks and they get it. Um, For younger developers that have, or I should say earlier in their career developers who have uh, come to Elixir, I think the main challenge is just Elixir provides so many low-level primitives that you don't get exposed to in other languages uh, and I mean, like concurrency and, you know, fault tolerance and all these things that you just don't think about. There, there's more concepts to have to learn and to worry about. Um, but once they get over the hump of, of kind of understanding them, um, it makes for uh, a much stronger foundation to build upon. Um, so I don't know if there's any through line, but um, kind of meeting a developer where they're at in their functional programming career and getting them over the line is very personal and different so uh, nothing super common i've seen
1: i could not agree with you more strongly i'm sure that (laughs) that alex and Sophie are kind of cracking up seeing my head bob this hard right but um i think that in either case whether you're coming from an object-oriented language and you have a good amount of experience or whether you're a young developer What you need is glue. You need glue. You need an understanding of how to compose on the bottom and the core and how to build layering systems. And then you're left with these components for lack of a better word that you can, that you can wire together with more sophisticated architectural designs and things. But until you have that basic glue, you you really, you really don't have a chance. And, And that's, I think that that's where we like to start at Groxio, particularly when we have people coming over from Java or JavaScript or Ruby. How how do you start to deal with the glue? How do you compose within that? How do those components then fit within an Elixir architecture? Where do you introduce uncertainty? Where does the concurrency fit into it? How do you gain the benefits of the functional language with one input and one output in the core before introducing some other things that that allow the uncertainty these are the important problems that that will lead a journeyman developer or a new developer and and turn them into to something that can reach their potential
2: bruce has made me think of one other thing which is a challenge i had in my own personal elixir journey Um, and maybe just a software journey in general is knowing when to constrain your inputs and dealing with like well-known types versus kind of like unbounded anything. Um, And what I mean by this is like, imagine you're building a web application uh, that takes user data from a form or something. Now I know best practice is like, you want to validate that input as high up the chain as possible. And then you're always you know, with your internal services and bounded context and anything else, you're working with really well-defined, validated structures, types, et cetera. Uh, and you're not, you don't have to check for all these edge cases all the time. And, you know, knowing how to layer your code in that way is, is something that I think is really challenging. Um, it takes, you know, any person in their software career, not even just Elixir, a long time to learn. Uh, but that's something where I think is a turning point for a lot of developers once they understand those layers. I think it also helps
0: there to have a good communication channel with a lot of the business side of the house. So you can understand how this ties into the business, you know, how, how, you know, what you're building actually ties back to uh, the business processes or the problems that are being solved. So having that, uh, that open communication channel with other parts of the company, I think it will give you that context so they can understand how this is actually solving customer problems and and, uh, how to actually structure the, the software to actually, do those uh, um, do those things that that power the business
2: software is the easy part communication is is the most difficult part
1: (laughs) always says the people who are good at software no I agree with you that's kind of flippant Um, but I have always hired for personal passion and um, and a kindness first right that that humility passion and kindness and then try to build other things other skills into that mindset Uh, but those those tend to be the people who are naturally curious about relationships between the software developers and the ultimate customer and and they're they're the people who walk around the process to actually have that relationship with the customer which i absolutely love
3: so we talked a little bit about how uh, Dave, one of your sort of strategies or experiences that you've had bringing on new team members in these kind of smaller Elixir-based environments has been colored by just getting people excited about Elixir and and kind of allowing them to unlock their productivity and just want to learn more and more. Um, kind of brings me to another question that I have for you, which is, what are some of the ways that Elixir has really benefited you or been that superpower that you mentioned in those startup environments? And in my opinion. Um, how much people like it is one of those superpowers, how easy it is to kind of spark that joy and get people to sort of fall in love with it uh, and want to keep learning and keep building. And I think that that is especially advantageous in a smaller company and a newer company and a newer organization, when you are going to be bringing in people who might be new to Elixir will certainly be new to the domain and what you're building because you know, that domain and what you're building is brand new as well. So yeah, like what are some other things about Elixir, whether how it relates to growing your team or solving the problems that have been in front of you that have yeah made it into the superpower of yours?
2: Well, I didn't think of it that way, but the excitement is certainly like a common ground where you could build interpersonal relationships and uh, kind of, you know, a team building thing in and of itself. Um, so that is certainly a superpower. Um, outside of that, I, I think... Small team is, is certainly um, something that's important in here, which is that you're able to get a lot done with a small amount of people. And I think there's a few reasons for this. Um, one is functional programming, immutable data, just being able to focus, like to localize your focus on the problem at hand and not be, not having to worry so much about how it impacts the larger system. Um You know, the whole, you know, gorilla with a banana uh, metaphor with object oriented programming. Sometimes you're working in an object oriented system. I worked in C and Fortran for a long time, and you touch one thing innocently and somehow take down all of uh, the futures desk on a Friday, um, which I did early in my career. Um, So (laughs) you want to um, really focus in on the problem at hand because what's important to the business is, you know, solving problems, adding features. solving business problems. Um, and with Elixir, I find that I'm able to just narrow in my focus on the problem at hand. And I'm not really worrying about too many other things as I do so. And I think that's like kind of the the core of the superpower is that I've been on a very small team at the Outline. We had me and the CTO, Ivar Vong, were able to kind of build our entire backend for this online magazine that included our own Uh, content management system. We built our own ad server and it served millions of users a month without a hitch on two servers. And one of them was for redundancy. Um, And so we were able to build things that kind of broke the paradigm of online content uh, where everything's served from CDN and it's all static. Whereas we served everything from our origin server and Elixir and we're able to do dynamic things without like any sort of like user... uh, intellectual property tracking. There's no sign-in, but we were able to track like their behavior on the site. You know, we popped it, you know, events into a gen server, and then we were able to, you know, reduce over those events and see like, oh, they've seen like these type of stories. Let's serve them this story because it's, you know, we see it as a relevant story to them, or let's serve this advertisement um, because they've already seen this other advertisement a few times. Um, So being able to make dynamic choices like that with relative ease is, Something that usually requires a lot of infrastructure or, uh, you know, building other microservices and everything in Elixir that I've done has been very like mono repo or um, as Brian Nagley from Simple Bet likes to say, uh, rightly sized services where you're really just focusing on the domain, focusing on the problem, and you don't need all the supporting infrastructure to to build the feature that actually adds value to your business. So so to me that's the the biggest superpower outside of that. I think just the vibrancy of the community is big. Um LiveView has been a game changer for me in terms of just what I'm able to accomplish with an extremely small team. We built a whole data collection effort at SimpleBet and this involves like putting people in stands at games and like entering in what's happening in the game as uh, you know, the game is happening and kind of everything is dependent on that. That is a Surface application that was built with two developers over like a three month period. And it challenges, you know, industry uh, giants who are worth billions of dollars. So being able to do that with like a very, very, very small team on Live View and Surface, you know, we're able to build things that just, I don't think other people would think is possible in the timeframe and with the amount of effort involved. So superpower, uh, for sure.
3: Yeah, I think it's definitely not an understatement, especially given that last anecdote that you shared to call what's our superpower in those circumstances. Um, you know, it's not just the community. It's not just kind of this learning curve and this level of excitement and enjoyment that we're able to give to developers who are joining the community and joining our teams. I think exactly as you said, it's like some of the core features of Elixir as a language, make it possible to solve some of the most challenging problems in programming with like really, really small teams and low level of effort. And I think that uh, the foundation of that is just like the actor model that underlies the beam in general, right? Once you have processes and you're passing messages between them, um, it's kind of like anything is possible. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about uh, your work with Surface at SimpleBet. I know you guys hired Marlis, the creator of Surface. So you definitely went all in on Surface as a. It's not. I guess it's not a full framework, it's the component library for LiveView. But yeah, tell us a little bit more about what you were able to do with Surface.
2: So Surface is, as you said, a component library for Phoenix LiveView. What's interesting about Surface is that the origins of Surface are actually started around the time that a LiveView was created. So Marlis, who worked at Dashbit, he's the, uh, one of the creators of Broadway, uh, Elixir LS, many other packages, Marlis, I'm sorry, I don't remember all the things you do. Um, but Marlis started this, uh, this project called Surface because he saw an opportunity to align, um, live view with sort of the likes of the best in class JavaScript frameworks like React and View and Svelte, um, that all kind of take, um, in JavaScript is called JSX, but it's kind of mimicking HTML structure and being able to semantically understand, um, you know, all of the tags in your JavaScript and to build a tree data structure and do diffing off of that. Um, and with that, you could build really powerful domain spe- specific languages, uh, like building if statements or, you know, special syntax for joining classes together, what have you, um, as well as a suite of other features and, he saw this opportunity three years ago when LiveView was created, and kind of built this off to a, off to the side pretty quietly. Um, and I think what's interesting is that over time, LiveView has seen more and more of this opportunity to take the ideas from Surface and bring them back to Main. Um, and if you ask Marlis, I think his goal with Surface was always like, "Hey, I think this belongs in LiveView proper." Um, but until we we get that acceptance, um, you know. I'm going to continue the surface project, but I ideally it just, you know, gets archived because it's already all in live view. Um, and it's cool because I think live view has taken a lot of these features like the Heeks templates, um, which is a branding and naming problem. We need to figure that one out, um, are really great because now they have the, uh, semantic, you know, structural markup. Um, we've got the properties, uh, the declarative uh, properties, in, in the comp-
3: science.
2: declarative signs, thank you, uh, which are, are fantastic. Um, and now we've got Phoenix live storybooks. So there's all of these things that have been in service for for many years now are now making their way back, but they're still missing a bunch of things. Uh, they're missing a context API, macro components, um, and some of the other like DSL type stuff that I think the live view core team maybe was hesitant to kind of go all the way. So curious to see how that evolves and I hope that they come together. But when I was working on this project that I was talking about at SimpleBet, this data collection effort, um, I had been working with LiveView for probably a year at that point and had heard of Surface, but it kind of mentioned and it seemed small. And it was kind of the right time, right place where I took a look at Surface and I'm like, wow, all of the pain that I've had with live view, this is before declarative designs, before heaks, before really any of these new features that have came out in the last year. Um, I was like, if I'm going to be building this really important project for the company in live view, I really want all of these features, and um, I want them for the same reason you might want a static type system, or for the reason why React and, and Vue.js are popular is that you can organize your code much better. And so, we kind of went all in on Surface for that project. And along the way, uh, became friendly with Marlis and chatted with him for pretty much on a daily basis for a while, started contributing to Surface. And uh, at a certain point, he was kind of interested in getting um, back into product development as opposed to consulting work that he was doing um, and a focus on open source. And so it was just seemed like a natural fit. Hey, we're like really all in on Surface. Uh, You should come here and you could continue to work on Surface. And yeah he's he's still a simple bet and they certainly have grown the the surface footprint over there
3: uh, i will say that i appreciate that you kind of picked out this relationship between live view and surface which i kind of think is like the perfect relationship right you've got surface which can kind of you know sprint ahead and kind of push the limit of what we as a community maybe want or need to be able to do with live view as a framework and with components as a tool within that framework. And you know, it's a place where I, I imagine Marlis and the other maintainers can move fast and break things more easily than it is to kind of do some of that more bleeding edge work within. I'm not going to call it more stable because I wouldn't say that language is stable yet. It's you know a lot a lot of activities going on there, but like a, a heavier uh, and perhaps slower moving framework. You know, just by nature of being a framework that is being used by a lot of people even today, so it's been really gratifying to see that Surface gets to kind of introduce these great new pieces of functionality. And then honestly, sure enough, like Live, you will just kind of pull it in a couple months later and, you know, make a version of it that is appropriate for use in the broader framework. And, you know, all the things that you mentioned are great examples. And I honestly have no doubt that that's going to continue to happen.
2: That's the hope. Yeah, I could
0: definitely echo those initial live view pain points. I have a, a legacy, quote unquote, uh, live view app that's st- still mostly, um, that was a Le- leaks templates was the original one.
3: Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah.
0: So yeah, uh, missing like opening tags, not having like an actual checker validate your DOM is a, is a huge, is a huge win. So could definitely attest the fact that Surface was definitely ahead of its time. And I'm really happy that a lot of those, um, those enhancements made their way back to to Liveview proper.
1: I think it's also cool to see some of the typing efforts kind of nibbling around the edges of the Elixir language, right? So you know we've had of the the last uh, four or five guests, um, two or three of them have talked significantly about about typing and typing problems in Elixir. not really problems, but opportunities to use the macros and, and other facilities in Elixir to provide some first class value in that area. And I think that this is one of the great things about Elixir is that uh, there's there's enough utility in the language to add some pretty sophisticated tooling around it without having to be burdened with it all the time.
2: Totally agree that it's it's interesting how like you can take an edge of the language and build a DSL for it and get probably 99% of the value that you would get from a static type system that it's really specialized to the domain you're working in. Uh, and I haven't seen that in, in other languages as well. I think my second biggest language, language is JavaScript. Um, and you see that with JSX, but there's not really macro facilities in JavaScript that allow the same affordances. There are uh, like, compilation features that you can add and extend JavaScript, but you, you get into a whole very scary, uh, spot if you do that, uh, for, for long-term maintenance. So, uh, Elixir is particularly good at, at this, and I'd love to spend some time in closure and other Lisp like languages and kind of get that perspective. That's been a goal of mine for a few years now. Uh, but what I've worked with in Elixir, just the macro facilities and um, how you could build DSLs is incredibly powerful.
3: So we've heard a lot about uh, how you guys have used Surface and LiveView at SimpleBet, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you're using Elixir at Bitfo and what problems it's helping you solve.
2: Sure, absolutely. So Bitfo is, um, maybe returning to my roots in media, is a content company that focuses on content in the cryptocurrency space. So we own a number of websites like ethereumprice.org, bitcoinprice.com, defirate.com um, and a few others, um, and kind of the through line between these websites is kind of financial data, uh, in this, in this domain, as well as editorialized, uh, content that's focused on, you know, providing value and educational experiences to, to people who want to get involved in, uh, cryptocurrency and kind of all the stuff that surrounds it, uh, decentralized finance. So whatever you think are your opinions about, uh, all of that, I have mixed, uh, opinions personally. Um, I think it's a really interesting domain because of, uh, you know, pairing, uh, you know, live moving data with kind of static or semi-static uh, editorialized content. And so the big piece uh, for Elixir for us is marrying data that we curate in our content management system with the data that we scrape or pull or stream uh, from live data sources, uh, such as, you know, prices, volume. Um, lending and borrow rates, kind of all these different things. And so what Elixir is really good at here is collecting this data and building ETL processes for whether it's I want to stream live data and I want to have the live price of uh, some particular token on the website. um, I can kind of subscribe to a WebSocket on some exchange and stream that data through Phoenix channels to our front end and do that almost effortlessly. Uh, so you know your typical setup of you know Phoenix PubSub and uh, Phoenix channels works really great even with a static website framework like Next.js, which is what we're using on the front end. Um, in addition to that, you know, ETL processes are pretty easy. You can use things like Broadway, but we're actually doing it even simpler than that, where we just have open jobs that run hourly, minutely, daily and they collect certain data and we persist them into uh, a time series database called timescale db and this has been really effective for us Um, it's kind of one of those things where you get it working once and then next thing you know you have two and a half million records in your database and things have just continued to run smoothly which is i think kind of the uh, maybe the through line of my elixir career is that you build it and then it just works and it just continues to work and sometimes things break but they don't make a big splash so in addition to that we have surface and live View for you know managing uh some of this backend data for you know just kind of seeing the health of things and when jobs are running using things like the open dashboard and phoenix live dashboard so it's just really great domain for all of this and now we're starting to add more interactive features onto our our front-end website and building phoenix channels for you know, sending user data over the wire, tweaking our backend data and sending it over is uh, just like a really, really great pattern.
1: Yeah, this is cool to me. And in so many reasons, the ETL, the extract, transform, and load, the, the superpower of Elixirs of dealing with massive amounts of data, this was really the first one, right? And that as Elixir has grown, we've seen all these things, all these different ways to Use data to surface data to present data to um, add um, annotations to data to um, to add telemetry to data. All of these things are are just exploding around the Elixir space, from the live views and live books to the index to the nerves. All of these things are are kind of they're they're all surrounding uh, what what a a data play could be for a startup. And this this is why startups like yours, Dave, are are so exciting to me, especially in in the context of Elixir.
2: Great, and again, I didn't have to like, you know, set up uh, Airflow and, you know, decide that I'm gonna need some uh, data lake and all these things. Maybe one day we'll decide that that's really necessary and that we wanna have like different stages of normalization for our data but for right now we're we're still deciding kind of where's our product market fit where are we heading as a company what's important the most important thing is like ship the thing make it easy so that we can adjust it over time you know we want to be future proof so to say so that you know depending on where we we go as a company that we have the tools to build there but elixir gives us a really solid foundation that i feel confident that any direction that we decide to to move towards that, we have the tools and everything necessary to get there, um, and we could do it without a lot of extra infrastructure, which is a whole other problem and maybe a whole other podcast episode to talk about.
0: Yeah, I feel like monoliths get a bad rap, uh, and maybe you know, maybe that's that's true in a lot of other languages and ecosystems. But I, I've never felt like an Elixir monolith was a bad thing. Yeah, uh, you, know, you can. <laughs> You can DM me later with your war stories if you, if you have any. But like I, I always feel if, even if the code base is millions and millions of lines, it's maintainable, it's performant. Um, you know everything can be easily taken care of on the back end, and I kind of feel that way with like Postgres and Timescale DB. It's everything's in one database, but that's not necessarily a bad thing because Postgres is amazing as a relational database and the Timescale DB extension just raises that ceiling for that one database. What can it do? So now you can do your transactional stuff, you can do your time series stuff. So I think monoliths aren't necessarily a bad thing as long
2: as they're they're well-composed and well-built. You can't see, but I'm aggressively nodding my head in agreement.
1: <laughs> At that point, Alex, it's just a packaging issue, right? You said if the designer's right, then do you keep it in, in one repository? Do you keep it in, in 10? It doesn't really matter, right? And this
0: takes me back to Sasha Yurek's book where he had that table where he had like, what was it, like Nginx and like uh, cron jobs and everything. And then the, the right most column was Erlang for everything. And I think that that simplifies uh, the end product that you're shipping. Uh, the fact that you can test all the components of your system in in the same test suite, you don't need to have, you know, Terraform tests, making sure that, uh, you know, cron jobs are running or Ansible tests that this is happening. Everything is nicely packaged. Everything can be easily validated. And then you can kind of lean on the Beam to be your operating system at that point and run your application and any background stuff.
3: Well, you mentioned it briefly, Dave, um, your guys' work with the Time Series DB. And I know you have an upcoming talk at CodeBeam America in San Francisco on that topic. Uh, since we have just a few minutes left, do you want to tell us a little bit more about it?
2: Sure. So TimeScaleDB, as Alex was was saying, is a extension to Postgres. And what it allows you to do is to mix relational data with time series data. Now, I should say that you can build time series data into Postgres and, you know, build a lot of really interesting applications. What Timescale gives you is extra facilities for uh, compressing data, aggregating data, uh, setting retention policies on data, uh, optimizing query performance, um, kind of a, a lot of interesting things that just make working with time series data better. Maybe I should state what time series data is uh, more broadly. A good example of this is like the price of a stock over time. Um, really anything over time is time series data. So it's going to have a timestamp, which represents you know the point in time in which you're recording the data. And then any other set of fields that represent the data at that point in time. And then you might do things like aggregate things on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis. Uh, you might do certain calculations or aggregations across those time periods. You might use it to chart, you know, kind of the the change over time, things like that. Um, so we are using this for tracking price, lending rate data, um, all that kind of stuff um, at Bitfo. And when I was kind of looking for a time series database I found timescale and I really didn't look much farther. I was like, okay, this actually is exactly what I want. It's the perfect fit. Um, The only problem was that there wasn't a good story in Elixir of working with timescale DB. And that actually wasn't a problem because one, it's already Postgres, so we've got the Ecto SQL, all the stuff that works with Postgres, it's just SQL. Uh, But for working with the custom functions that timescale provides, Um, I started a library called Timescale, and it just makes it easier rather than having Ecto fragments all over the place that you can have uh, some nicer macro facilities that kind of do some type checking for you and really provide maybe more than anything else, just documentation on how to work with TimescaleDB. So along the way, gotten some um, interest from the community. And Alex Kutmos here uh, is one of those people who's kind of actually had some some of the most important contributions to the library thus far, some some primitives for validating data. um, And kind of, we're really building upon that very incrementally. Um, And something I've tried to do from the beginning with this project is just get people involved, get people excited in this project. uh, Because I think it's a good opportunity for really anyone to collaborate since the level of knowledge to kind of add a contribution is very low. It's pretty much just like you see one of the functions, you kind of, follow a certain pattern, add some documentation, and you're done. Maybe here on this podcast is another call to you know please uh, take a look. And if you're interested, get involved. We have a timescale channel on the Elixir Slack channel or the Elixir Slack organization. Um, and myself and maybe Alex would be uh, happy to help you get involved. Um, and hopefully in the next month or so, we'll have a release on it. And so my talk is at CodeBeam is really just going to be about what is TimeScaleDB? Why might you want to use it, especially in an Elixir application? Um, and what are some of the interesting features of it or unique features of it that make it really great, uh, a really great choice for anyone who's wants to integrate some time series features into their uh, product and application?
3: Excellent. Um, I think on that note, we will encourage our listeners to check out your talk if they're going to be there in person at Codebeam this year uh, or online when it comes out because they will all be posted eventually. And, um, oh yes, finally, we're visited by one of your dogs. I think we actually have a bit of a, oh man, he was right there. Dog mirroring situation going on. Both dogs, a black and a white, just like a cookie. Very nice, very good note to end it on. For listeners who cannot actually see this, there's a Pomeranian on the couch behind (laughs) Dave. There's a Pomeranian cradled in Dave's arm. It's a good day to be a Pomeranian in Dave's office.
2: This is Pearl, and that is, uh, his name is Shy Guy, but we call him Shy Boy.
3: Cute. I love them. Do they usually hang out in your office with you? Uh,
2: all day. And they are, um, I like to joke that they are my observability um, for the house. <laughs> if, I love if it. If we're getting I any really delivery, we get it. I get an alert.
3: Yeah. Wait, how have I, I'm on the observability team at GitHub. How have I never made that joke about my dog who is definitely observing all the things when he's not busy making a nest out of a blanket. (laughs) This blanket started life draped over the, today, draped over the arm of the couch, like folded. He, with his paws, like extracted it, unfolded it, turned it into a nest, and now he's in it so it's impressive yeah all right anyway uh for anybody that doesn't care as much about pets we'll wrap it up here thank (laughs) you so much dave for joining us today uh it was really great talking to you really great hearing about the things you've done with elixir the ways that you've supported the community and uh, what you're up to now and where it's going so check out dave's talk at code beam if you're going to be there check it out online later on if you're not and uh, we'll catch you guys next time thanks everybody